Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everyone, from Bristol Studio. This is 94 and More. I'm Jake Fenster. And I'm Professor David Hollander. In this series, we explore how basketball can challenge us to rethink systems and ideologies in service of reimagining our world in new and unexpected ways. Throughout this season, we will be speaking with a variety of guests, from authors to artists, academics to athletes, and many more. All united in a shared love and reverence for basketball, we will bring into focus the game's impact on the greater culture at large. Let's jump in. So I, I love teaching. I teach at NYU. I've been there for 15 years. Uh, relevant to this enterprise and my relationship with 94 More and Bristol Studio, I teach a course, uh, not a business course, um, though I, it, it can be applied to, uh, called How Basketball Can Save the World. Come on now. Um, Come on. Say less. <laughs> say less, Dave. <laughs> That's a long conversation for us for another time, but I I root all my teaching of the business of sports in play, mm. and so I am so happy to be in this space with you. Oh, that's what's up. Well, you you, you had me at basketball could save the world, <laughs> right? So I mean, come yeah. on, come on, yeah, and I mean. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into it. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, yeah. 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 We'll, we'll just get into it. Yeah. All right, let's do it. Our guest today is an author and instigator of inspiration. He brings a playful curiosity, a keen understanding of human nature, and a lifelong love of competition to all of his endeavors. He served in the Air Force for 10 years. He spent eight years at Nike as a creative catalyst, turning ideas into reality. He was one of the first African-American head athletic trainers for an NBA team, his hometown 76ers. He believes that play is serious business. Kevin Carroll, welcome to the show. What's happening, Jake? What's happening, Dave? Thank you so much for inviting me in. Our, our, I hope the listeners already know we are we are properly had a dynamic warm up before, so uh, yeah, it, it, it's already on fire. So I can't wait to get into it. Let's get into it, um, Kevin. I uh, look. I, I'm just gonna just go right away to the to the meat of it. So, at the time, you were one of only three people that Phil Knight said, "Listen, you actually have bigger things to do. I know that." You have my blessing to leave Nike. Talk about at that time, what was this bigger thing that was driving inside of you? So it's interesting. I had a subtitle at Nike. My official title was Catalyst, and my subtitle was the mayor of Nike. Phil gave me that. <laughs> so Phil called me the mayor of Nike. And so we had a standing meeting for two years. So imagine I'm not part of his executive team. I'm not part of his you know, leadership team. I'm just someone who is a part of the community, and he saw the importance of having someone speak on behalf of the people. So we had our regular monthly meeting, and at this moment when I brought up, I think I'm in this dilemma. I love it here, but I think there's bigger work for me to do. I had a book deal with ESPN and Disney. I had a talent agency. I had a speaker's bureau, and I'm still doing my work at Nike and thriving, 
And so during one of our monthly meetings, I explained my dilemma and I said, what do you think I should do? And he was so clear. He said, hey, I don't let talent leave here. And he paused and he looked at me and said, but we would be selfish to keep you. You have bigger work to do. Basically, go forth and prosper. And the bigger work for me to do was to get on my bully pulpit, if you will, and bring some Rev Kev to it, right? And preach the gospel of play, right? And, and the importance of play and why a ball can change the world and save the world and what I'd witnessed around the world to that point, not knowing I would see and discover even more amazing things and people and the movement and all these things. And so that was what was my calling, was to be a voice on behalf of the movement, but to get into rooms, Dave, to get in the rooms that most of those people who are running nonprofits would never get in. They would never be in front of, you know, titans of industry. But yet I could do that because of my speaking, right, and my writing. And so that really kind of created an opportunity for someone that was a part of the movement to spread the gospel, if you will, in a different and unique way. So it's 2022. It's an urgent message. It's an important message. You say play is necessary. Why? I think it's already kind of explained itself. Let's look at what happened during the pandemic. I'll ask both of you. Did you have a puzzle table? <laughs> Did you start gardening? Did you do crochet or knitting? Um, maybe you put you picked up a hobby that you had stopped. Maybe you had appointment viewing. Let's think about all the things that people, oh, got a Peloton. I mean, it's like whatever it was, people relied on play to cope with a difficult moment. But they didn't give it its due and credit. It was getting elevated. But I saw what was going on. And I said, oh, my goodness, this is so good. I'm going to double down on it. And so I got on it even more. And I think this message of the importance of play and why play is serious business just got elevated during the pandemic and its importance really got elevated because what was happening in a lot of cities with all the youth programs, I was talking to coaches, youth coaches all over the world. My kids are suffering. That was their outlet. That was their moment for community, for team, for connection. Maybe it was where they were getting their, their one meal. And that was gone. So these coaches were suffering also. So I really saw the importance of it play out. Yes, it was no longer rhetoric. It was no longer research. It was real. So, so let's peel it back. Play, what is it? Define it. How do I know it when I see it? So I always say that the presence of play is around us. We have to be curious to spot it and to look for it. And it could be a simple someone just kind of looking off with a little childlike glow to their face and they're discovering something. It could be kids literally playing. It could be, you know, we had this group of kids, their parents were so brilliant, they would bring giant cardboard boxes to their house. And these kids would be building something all the time in our neighborhood. It can be games. It can be sport. It can be just being. Play is defined by the individual. And what I think it is, is that what tickles your brain, what brings you joy, right? That's what play is. And so play is whatever that endeavor that brings you a, a, a feeling of joy and happiness 
Maybe you can't easily articulate what it is, but it just keeps drawing you back to it. That's why I go back to the idea of it tickles your brain. So, uh, you know, I think there's two great philosophers on play. One is you, uh, and the other one is this guy, uh, 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 an old Dutch sociologist named Johan Huizinga, who wrote yep. Homo Ludens. Homo Ludens. Those five conditions of play that somehow are, like you say, serious, but not real life. A life, but not actual, the consequences of life, not hunger, not death. So talk to me about like why play matters for humanity. You know what's so wonderful? There's um, another researcher, Maxine Sheets Johnstone, The Primacy of Movement. I don't know if you're familiar with her um, research, but she talks about movement is integral to us being humans. Cells, blood flow, all of that. So let's just break it down to movement. And when we start to celebrate movement and look at movement, that means to be alive. That means there's an opportunity for an exchange between people. And play is about that exchange between people. Yes, I know that you can have your own solo play and do that, but play is always elevated when others come and join. And yes, there doesn't have to be an outcome, right? You can have play for play sake. Absolutely, right? And that's when you've got the puzzle table, right? It's just play for because we're just filling it in and there's not a, we got to get it done by this deadline. But then there's also the games that we watch people play. We've got the World Cup getting ready to happen. We've got, you know, college football here in the U.S. We've got all these other games, the NBA, all these things. So I really do believe that it's about movement. And when, if you're alive and there is blood flow and there's cell cells moving, movement is at the core of play. And so I think that's the opportunity. If you have the, the possibility of movement, then there's the possibility of an exchange between human beings, which then can elevate, hey, what do we want to do with this connection that we have? And we have this in common, right, is movement. So you've been training Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies on this idea you're talking about, this movement plus play, how does that make them better at what they do? Oh my gosh. So Dave, so, so I've got the best oxymoron I'm going to share with you right now. The Fed and fun. The Federal Reserve, I have been doing work with them for over a decade. And I always say the best oxymoron, the Fed and fun. Why would they be inviting a me to that? Um, that industry, I mean, look, the consequences of their decisions can tilt the globe, yeah. the global economy. In their savviness, their leadership and development team said, hey, this is some weighty, heavy stuff. We need some light in here every once in a while. And they discovered my work like 10 years ago. And I've had a chance to speak to heads of Federal Reserve banks, to leaders, to rising stars. And you want to ask, what helps? How does it help them? It lets them catch their breath. It lets them take a pause. It lets them see humanity. They're no longer their job titles, their job description, their functions. They are just them. And 
it's so beautiful to see when they shed that and they become who they are at their core and they feel safe. They have to feel safe. They have to feel like they have permission. This is one of the things that adults need. And I create that very, you know, just candidly with my story, right? My story disarms. And then I create this environment where it's a judgment-free zone. And guess what? It's on. I have seen individuals at consulting organizations, banking industries, accounting industries, you know, you name it. Once they surrender and bring back what I love to call their adult self, where the kid and the adult collide, the adult, it's so beautiful to see them rediscover this energy that maybe they were tamping down or maybe it atrophied in them. It's really lovely to see. And then I always warn them, it's waiting for you outside this wonderful sequestered environment we just created, the noise, the distractions, the challenges. But you've got an opportunity to bring even an nth of this into your effort. So, yeah, that's how I see it helping them. It really builds more camaraderie, more um, connected teams, a sense of belonging, um, shedding, seeing you as something other than your title, job description, all of that. Jake, yeah. you had your yeah, hand I was up. Gonna Sorry. Say, no, you're good. You're good. Um, that's just me signaling to Dave <laughs> when I have a question in, in his flow. Um, yes. So you're talking about a specific situation, right, with the Federal Reserve and going in there and kind of teaching them the importance or reteaching them the importance of play. What does that really look like? Like, how do you go in there and take them from this group of people who probably are pretty skeptical of what you have to say at first to then returning to that, you know, adult self? I think a big part of it is my story. So my story always makes people pause. Because when I unpack my story of my childhood filled with abandonment and addiction, upheaval and uncertainty, dysfunction and disappointment, and I was a child, a product of that. But I discovered something early. I discovered a playground. And then at that playground was a group of boys. And the group of boys invited me to play. And it was the thing I was yearning. I didn't know how to articulate it, but I wanted to belong somewhere. And I found it. And then I made a commitment to it. I'm going to keep a ball with me no matter what. Ball in a broader sense, right? I committed to sports. I committed to play. I committed to teams. And it started to unlock all these other possibilities within me. When I unpack that and then show them all the things that happened as a result of that commitment and that steadfast belief that that was the thing I should be chasing and I had something to get me out of bed in the morning, I can see the room tilt in my favor. So I can see them go from this to this. And when I got you, oh, now I can start sprinkling in these little nuggets, these little insights, these little simple truths, right? And then I can see when you grab something or when you give me a knowing nod or when you tilt your head like a little kid, like, oh, wait, and it makes you think. And so that's really what happens. We do interactive workshops where they're actually having to, to build something with the kids' product and stuff. And, and, but because my story level sets the energy and lets them see what play did for an individual who was dealing with some difficult. And the other thing is, guaranteed, there's someone in that room who's got a story like mine. Always, Jake. There's always someone in there. And that person is really intently looking at me. 
And that's when I think everything shifts in their mindset because maybe they didn't do it, give it its due. They didn't give it um, gratitude. They didn't recognize it until I say these things and they go, whoa, that's my story. And I had this, or there was a person in my life that was my chief encouragement officer who was my unlock, my cheat code, my wayfinder. Oh my gosh, I get it. And here I am sitting in this position, right, of influence or leadership. I got to bring more of me to the table. And it gives them permission to show up more fully. And I tell them, look, I know you're not going to be able to be full on you like you're showing right here. And I get it. But if you can just give your team a glimpse of your humanity, give them a glimpse of your curiosity, give them a glimpse of your fun side. <laughs> it's over. It's a wrap. Because now they are following you as a leader. They are believing in you as a leader. They are not following your job title, your job function. They're not following that. And they're believing in you. And so I always tell leaders, you got to be willing to be a bit more transparent and a bit more vulnerable. How do we move from being transactional to being transformational with our people? And so that's what I do in that moment is versus the no offense, Dave, the professorial, you know, keynote speaker. Dave's not that I actually Dave's not like that not, at all. I know he's not. I know he's not, but I know he got some colleagues like that. <laughs> so yeah. So to show up with not show up with still a level of gravitas, but also a playfulness about me too. Well, I, I, I am very interested in systemic change through play. And, you know, it's amazing. And not surprising to me to hear that uh, you can help the Fed manage the economy better through play. You can help uh, co corporations make a better sneaker, you know, in, in a creative session uh, through play. Uh, people can think about their career advancement better through play. But can we make this world somehow, uh, can we make every individual in it better people? Is there something more you're going for? I think, you know, a big part for me, honestly, is how do I embolden the next generation of leaders, makers, doers, and dreamers to believe that circumstances never dictate their destiny, that they can find a way? Because that's really what this work is about. No offense to my hosts here, but I'm trying to reach the group behind you and the one behind them to inspire them because that's who's going to make the difference now, right? Yes, we've had a good run, but we need to now be generous of spirit to share all our wisdom and all our insights and be the unlock and be the cheat code for the, and be a wayfinder. So I understand I'm in this sage moment, right, where I can just be as generous as possible, continue to collect, continue to be a lifelong learner, that beginner's mindset, openness and eagerness, but do it on behalf of them, that's the bigger move for me right now is that. And if I'm doing that every day, if I'm sharing wisdom, sharing insights, and I'm doing it with no agenda, my agenda is you and your journey. And I've got global reach now with this nice little device here, right? And all these platforms. I'm just trying to show up everywhere. I just, I just spoke to the American Community School in Dubai. Yeah. Right? Because the kids saw my book through social media. 
and the teacher started using it. So I got a chance to talk to those students. I talked to students in New Zealand. I got a chance to talk to students in South Africa and Joburg. And so I'm telling them the same thing. We are anxiously awaiting your arrival because you're going to be the ones. So it's my job and I take it and honor it to give you as much as I can of what I know and then you all do with it what you will. So yes, I do believe that we have the capacity to affect with play and with our stories, and we just have to be willing to share them. These kids are, man, look, these kids are savvy, clever, but they also are realizing they don't have enough knowledge yet. That's the thing that I've been really encouraged by, is they're seeking me out. You know, you're a... <laughs> Look, you're a phenomenal influence, and I wish more kids could hear you more often. But I'll tell you what they do see uh, often in terms of messaging around play is professional sports. And I know, and I know you know, that if you look at a graph of the last 20 years, the ascendancy of professional sports is uh, a steep incline. There's more money, more media, more uh, cultural space. At the same 20-year period, if you see a graph of youth participation in sports, it is the opposite trajectory. It goes down. Now, how can that be if something takes up so much media, commercial, uh, 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 you know, cultural space? You would think young people would want to do more of it. What is broken in this play message? I think what's broken in this play message is this absolute that that's the only way you play. And that's the grail. There's the, there's the, that's the brass ring. There's the, the thing you got to get. And so when I'm 10, 11, 12, and someone says, hey, kid, you ain't got it. Oh, well, I might as well walk away from it. Instead of recognizing that movement, let's go back to this word movement, the importance of movement throughout your life. And so how do we celebrate movement? Jake talked about playing intramurals in college, right? And, and meeting people. And now he's actually working with those people that he played intramural basketball with in college. This is what we need to be telling kids. Yes, that's the holy grail. Yes, it's lovely to have aspirations, but you know who your first heroes were? It was the high school basketball star. It was not that professional athlete. It was that kid that you could go and watch on Friday nights playing football, right? It was on Tuesdays and Thursdays or Tuesdays and Fridays or Wednesday, whatever, high school basketball. And so what we have done a, a disservice to youth is we haven't talked about why play matters throughout your entire life, not just to get to college or that D1 scholarship. But you know who needs to be educated? The rents, the adults, right? We need to get them, sit them down and have some real talk, real talk like, hey, slow your roll. Stop trying to live vicariously through your kids, the thing that you weren't able to achieve. You were not genetically inclined to get that special little extra dip into that athletic you know, th that, and your kids probably don't have it either. So let them enjoy it. But then when they decide that, you know what? I don't think this is for me, but I don't want to quit play. I don't want to quit play. That's that key thing. You know, Aspen Project Play had that whole thing, don't quit, right? Don't quit play, right? Don't retire, kid, right? 
and kids are retiring from sports, we got to change that. We have to change that because it's not about that professional level. It's about your lifelong, the lifelong game of movement. And that you just said something that really resonated with me because I kind of grew up in that era where we started really specializing in sports, right? So for me growing up, I started with tennis and I had one of those tennis dads that was like this, you know, every tournament, everything, he's staring at me, he's watching every play, he's like yelling from the sidelines. So I really kind of experienced like this form of play and this love of a sport early on that then became something else. And I actually walked away um, and I transitioned into football. Same thing happened in football. I walked away from football. And then I kind of found, you know, this, this passion for myself in, in basketball. And I will admit there was even a point there where before the intramurals with Luke, you know, playing high school basketball and just going through the stress of that and the pressure of it, I kind of lost it for a second. I didn't want to pick up a basketball. And, you know, it was that kind of early form of play and appreciation I had for all of my friends were through sport. That was how I connected with people. That was how I learned about people. Um, and it just opened my eyes to the world. So when I kind of got that chance again, it, it helped me redevelop my passion and love for the sport. Um, how do you deal with that in, with today's generation where there's so much being thrown at them, uh, especially with you know using high school basketball as an example? High school basketball is now a big business. It always might have been a business, but you have high school teams selling TV shows about their kids. You have middle school kids being superstars on social media platforms. How do you find that essence of play and make sure that they don't lose that when it seems the business of sports is starting to creep into places that it, it never did before on such a level? Or has no business creeping into at this point. So let's look at who's at the root of that. It's not the kids. It's adults. And so... I really, my worry and concern is that a lot of adults are profiting off of kids. And the more that young people can find their, so what, what we're pursuing, and Jake, you, your story really made me think about this. You identified yourself as, if people asked you, hey, who are you? And you would, Jake, and I'm a tennis player. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because you drew your self-esteem from being associated as an athlete. Yeah whatever that sport might be. But when you got to college, you actually started finding yourself. And I'm okay not being Jake, basketball player. I'm Jake, NYU student, and I love to do these things. So how do we help you figure out what is the bigger story about yourself? And how can you learn to tell that story about what gets you out of bed in the morning? What inspires you to chase it? And yes, if it is that sport, I'm going to dig deeper. Tell me why. Tell me why. So that I can get you past using the rhetoric that your parents or coaches poured into you. And I want to say, okay, you can love basketball. Did you know you could be an architect and build the arenas? Did you know that you could be a coach? Did you know that you could be a statistician? Are you good at math? Hey, did you know that? Did it, right? And so tell me the things that you are inspired by. And then if you love basketball, I can tell you all the things you could do within that. So when you do end up, the likelihood of you not being able to rise to whatever level somebody has projected for you, you still can stay attached to the game. So I've always been talking to young people about the game within the game. And if we can actually have a conversation 
with all these student athletes, if basketball, if football, if baseball, if whatever sport ended today, but you know that it is the thing that gets you out of bed, what else could you do within it? And most of them said, I don't know. But if we actually can reveal to them the whole ecosystem of that sport, then they've got an opportunity to stay attached to the thing that inspires them. And yet I don't have to be, or I can't be, or I, that absolute, a professional athlete. I think what you just said is really fascinating to me because I think if you ask a student of high, a group of students in a high school who play sports, you know, what do you want to do? They'd all say professional. You know, they all want to be professional. They want to take that next level. I'm going D1. It, I'm going D1, like, right? That's exactly. I'm going D1. Like you said, though, it defines them. It's their personality, yes. how they perform. If they get those D1 offers, that defines them and their value. There, there isn't that separation of this is something that I love to do, but I can stay close to it. It's if I don't achieve on this level in this way, then I failed. Yes. And it's all about your self-esteem. It is about, and that's, you know, you're going through your formative years and establishing who I am at my core. And so these are things that you're, you're wrestling with every day. And when I go to school, I want people to see me as, what is my label? Athlete. Nerd. Nerd. <laughs> Smart. Yeah. You know, goth, emo, whatever, right? People start attaching labels to you. And if you can start to take some ownership of that label, that's the key thing. That's how you navigate the day when we're in our formative years. So if we can just give them a little bit more of a story to add to that, that's where I think we could add value and help people not feel like they failed, that they failed, or I disappointed someone because I'm not going to be the athlete that you poured all your time, energy, and money into. And I'm sure your dad was a little disappointed when you said, I don't want to do tennis anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that's the hardest thing is like you said, really separating those two and, and finding that passion. And for me, where I've been very lucky and to have someone like professor, you know, what you said is exactly how he approached it from day one in his class. The first thing he said was who here likes sports and everyone raises their hand. And the next thing is why? And everybody drops because you really haven't thought about that. And it forces you to really think and separate what that really means, what that love is, what that passion is. And I can trace, you know, specifically for me sitting here in this seat, having this conversation with you goes back to, you know, obviously my experience with basketball and play, but, you know, the way that Dave, ugh, professor, um, you know, put it to me, it made me think differently. It made me see the things that, that you're mentioning, Kevin. So imagine getting that sooner. Imagine getting that sooner, right? If we could actually accelerate that learning. If I had got you at middle school, yeah, <laughs> you'd have been you'd have been straight in high school, dude, right? You'd have been killing the game, yeah, right? Yeah, it would have been a whole different and, story. And, and I can say, since I haven't seen Jake play tennis, I still do like that sport. Um, <laughs> that's a joke. That's a joke. Um, but hey, you know, but but also. It, could it just be that we need to restructure the prioritization or the or where this thing called sports fits in the whole thing? Like, like there's this there's this system that says learn math, uh, learn how to read, learn how to write, and these are important things. 
How about learn how to, what you're talking about, Kevin, body, mind, uh, this other language that, like, 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 isn't it weird that there's a whole athletic department in, you know, uh, uh, institutions of higher learning and grammar schools and high schools? There's nothing else like that, separate, adjunct. Shouldn't it be over here with math and reading? And elevated that way and, and integrated. And I think that's, once you have this ability to separate it, it can create its own culture. And what has it done? It's created its own culture, right? And so within the school, oh, well, that's what they do over there. And that's how they take care of the athletes. And that's for them. And you learn that very early that you're treated differently when you're an athlete. And when you're no longer an athlete, oh, I don't get all that. And people don't see me the same way and they don't speak to me the same way. And I draw all my value from being seen and spoken to and, 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 you know, interacted with a certain way and engaged with. And so that's the whole idea of going to college as a collegiate athlete and they put you in a dorm with all the athletes and you never get to interact with the other students and, oh, they've got all these things to keep you sequestered. You're missing out on the thing that all the other students are building. When Jake went to intramurals and met all these other cats, right, and they start, you know, chopping it up about what am I going to do when I graduate? Hey, I think I'm going to start a brand. Hey, maybe I want to work with you. Blah, blah, blah. These student athletes are only talking to each other. And what are they talking about? I'm trying to get my NIL right, man. Trying to get that money, trying to do this, trying to do that. Man, when I go to the league, and that doesn't matter the gender. It's the same conversations. And so they cheat those student athletes. It's something I've said so many times. And I told coaches when I get in front of their teams, I said, you might not invite me back after I say this. <laughs> and I say to the student athletes, I said, you need to meet three people in your class that are not part of the athletic department. Those are going to be the ones you need to be cool with because they're about something after college. And I just think that's the that's the the system is broken that way. Dave, it is really broken. The the system all around the block is broken. You know, there's a an acute 21st century problem of loneliness and lack of connection and and belonging right yeah and belonging and you you give you you, you say we all speak ball that's a, a gift yes. that you've given all of us and i i noticed at the end of some of your talks you will throw a ball into the audience and i know that there are actually trauma specialists who begin sessions with no language just a ball, passing it back and forth to what you said, start to build the most elemental me to you, you to her connection. What, like, like, where can we begin? What do we talk about? Like, just how can we start to create this kind of building block from day, I, you know, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. From day one. No, no, yeah. I love that. The, how do we start this building block? Let's let's go all the way back to something you just mentioned we all have in common. We all recognize 
that round sphere. Friedrich Froebel, right? The Froebel gifts talked about a child should receive something round. It explains the world. And it's like a ball, if you will, a ball of yarn, a ball physical, but something round. And the reason is because I can hand it to someone. You can hand it back. We start to recognize how I connect to you. Oh, then I can start to master things with that round object. And you'll play with me. I don't have the words, but I can tell what's happening, right? I can do object play where you're tracking, right? You're tracking me. We don't even need a ball. You're tracking my eyes. All these things that we're doing. So let's get back to if we can create more of an environment, more of a society that recognizes the importance of belonging and what is at the the core of that is this exchange between us. Okay, then what do we have in common that doesn't require language? Yeah. Yeah. What it only requires gestures. Play. And it doesn't matter your physical abilities, right? We'll go back to Maxine Sheets Johnstone. As long as there is cell and blood flow, you are alive. There is movement. Let's celebrate that. And the more that we can do that, oh my goodness. Like, I just think this is the opportunity we are overlooking and marginalizing and and believing that it's not important. And yet it's critical. You talked about loneliness. You talked about um, the sense of not feeling connected, which got exasperated during the pandemic, mental health, well-being, all these things. What are all these schools addressing? Belonging, connection, community, right? What did they realize? We need, it is a lack of development around that. We need help learning how to do that. So the more that we can actually create moments where we're having exchanges, you feel safe, you feel like you have permission, we can build connections. Let's go to something we all have in common. We all have a play history. So Dr. Stuart Brown from the National Institute for Play talks about we all have a play history. Play is a part of everyone's journey. And so when we look at the things we have in common versus the things that we separate us and create division, let's go to something we all can absolutely, I don't care, unequivocally, you cannot tell me you don't have a play history. You have a favorite game, hobby, toy from your childhood, right? Tell me why. I love that you use that. Tell me why. And as soon as I can get to that, oh, it's on. So I am of the belief that there's a particular form of play that's especially effective in creating belonging, uh, creating a sense of uh, connection, uh, making people see each other's humanity, as, as you alluded to earlier. And, and it's this form of play called basketball. Is, you've had much experience with that game. Is there something special, something different about that space, about that structure, about that particular game that is good at making us the kinds of people you're hoping we become? I honestly believe why, you know, basketball is a special game. It's its own language. You can basically construct a hoop out of whatever. Doesn't have to be at 
regulation height. It could be a trash can and you're just, you know, throwing, you know, what, what, what Bean did, what Kobe did, right? Throwing socks into a trash can, right? And little things. So it's really only limited by your imagination how you can actually simulate the game. And the ability to create opportunity to get better at something at whatever level you're at and to see the joy when that ball that you throw towards a round cylinder to put it in and it goes in, oh my gosh, it doesn't matter if it's a trash can, if it's a kid's, you know, hoop, if it's an actual hoop, right? If it's lowered, it's this pure joy and if you watch Biddy Ball, I love watching Biddy Ball because the kids cheer for each other. It doesn't matter you're on another team, right? When the ball goes through, they all get so giddy about that. There is this collective joy that basketball creates. And there's something really magical about collective joy. And I think that's basketball. Does it matter that the space is smaller than most team play spaces it's intimate the intimacy the ability to see the facial expressions the ability to connect with that person's humanity because there's not anything blocking that i think that um you can feel and sense it's theater it's theater and it's it's physical theater and so when you start to see it as that, it's very Shakespearean, isn't it? There's a game within the game. There's a play within the play. I tell people, you know, the timeouts are just as inspiring and exciting. And players watch the timeouts, <laughs> right? They get, like, excited to, like, you can see them not paying attention to the coaches sometimes because the timeouts are so good. But it's theater. And even some of the arenas are lit like theater. Yeah. The Brooklyn Nets like their court. If anybody's paying attention, they light it like theater, like Broadway. Yeah. And so I think there's something really beautiful about seeing this physical theater play out, but all it's a 360. It's not just focused down here. You have a chance to change and shift your gauge and your perspective and take in whatever it is. And I think there's something about that intimacy about the game. I really do think it is it is beautiful unexpected theater does it matter that unlike other sports the goal is elevated <laughs> that's a play on words isn't it the goal is elevated right the goal is where you have to shift your gaze you have to change your perspective you have to look up it also forces you to be curious and have to use different perspectives it's something really amazing where most are on the single plane yes they may be a little bit of parabola right in football but basketball uh-uh right and it's being you know the ball being tossed over past all these things and you're having to move with it and so i think there is something wonderful about an elevated goal and i think there's something lovely about that play on words too well, if I know you the way I think I know you, the reason why you're so excited about play, making all kinds of aspects of our lives and our future better, is because like the elevated goal, we want to transcend. We want to do something we've never done before. We want to go higher. We want to somehow, and, and 
I believe, like you believe, somewhere play is the key. Play is the unlock. I, I do believe that play is the unlock. I think it is the thing that helps you imagine a possibility that maybe you couldn't have imagined before. And because play forces you to use your imagination, to peek around the corner, to come up with possibilities, to use the idea of why not, all these things happen when you're playing. And play is great friends with curiosity, right? And I do believe that, that play and curiosity are partners in crime, if you will. And that curiosity allows you to come up with solutions, with problem solve, with have more creative confidence. And so when you talk about elevating all aspects of your life and transcending, that really is tied directly to your curiosity and your belief that there is a solution out there. I just have to keep working a little bit more or inviting other people with other perspectives to play, to join me. And so, and they will all get lifted together, right? We'll all transcend together. And I think that's what really is magical about play and its ability to help you transcend, right? You need curiosity also with that. And play is about that. Kevin, you said a little earlier that we all come from a history of play. So if that's the case, right? Like the three of us, we understand the importance of play. What is being lost? Uh, Why do you think play is being overlooked? I just think that, the reason play gets overlooked, honestly, is we got to get serious. We need to get focused. You know, play, that's, you know, that's, that's when you were a child. But now you need to focus. Now let's think about when your dad started getting more serious with you about tennis. You need to get more serious, right? You need to get more focused. And you're like, I'm playing a game. Shouldn't I be finding ways to enjoy it more. No, you got to get more serious. You got to get more practice and you got to. And so it's this tension that people create around play that play can't be anything but sport, professional sport, aspiration, D1. It can't be for the joy of it. It can't be for the simplicity of the act of doing it and inviting others Dave, you asked about basketball. Isn't it a magical thing when you could be on a court by yourself bouncing a ball and shooting hoops that it always attracts somebody else and you end up sharing it? And so I think, you know, Jake, I don't want to overlook and and finish answering your, your question. I just think that what happens is we want to marginalize it. We want to push it to the weekends. Oh, play on your own time. Play on the weekend. Instead of recognizing play is ever present if you want it to be. And play can say, play a role, a really important role in goal setting and achievement and manifesting. But what we end up doing is we marginalize it. And I think if we can elevate it and elevate its importance, look, I can get science if you want me to, right? We, we've been dropping some science stuff, right? I mean, but I also can give you what I know to be true, what I have witnessed, which is even more, I think, has a greater impact. The ability to say what I've seen around the world and what people have done with play and how play has addressed really serious things. So don't tell me that it's not important. Let's let's dance. Like, you know what? Let's dance. Let's have a conversation about it and let's dance. Because if you think that that's only child's play and it's only for children, I'm going to go back to 
this global phenomena that just happened, this global traumatic event, and I'm going to point out, and I can talk to anyone around the world, everyone started playing to cope, didn't they? Was the first thing they did, the first thing they did, and they didn't give it its due, and they didn't, maybe didn't elevate it, but when I say it in a room with these consultants, with these accountants, with these executives, they all give me the knowing look like, yeah, we had a puzzle table. <laughs> yeah, I was gardening. Yeah, my Peloton, I love my trainers, right? I mean, you went to something that helped you cope. So I think it's the idea that folks can be so quick to marginalize it and and devalue it. But when somebody is in front of them that's really speaking truth to power, they can't. They can't in any way, right, push back. And so I think we need to have more of these conversations in front of the decision makers. Also kind of amazing, Kevin, that in the pandemic, uh, one of the games that people would not stop playing was basketball so much they had to take yes. down the rims. Or cover them, right? Like they were covering them <laughs> yeah. up because people are coming together. No, we can't have you come together, right? And so, but pe- remember what was happening in all, I mean, it was global. Yeah. What was it, happening? It was a crisis. They had to make public service announcements like, don't go play basketball. Dude, I have I have this book called Buckets. And they actually did a study in Portland of hoops. They went around a group of guys for two or three years. They did it and just shot hoops that they discovered. And they have a whole series in here of when they were covering them up during the pandemic. And all the lengths that they would go to to actually try to get you to not play. And then they have great shots of people like taking, dismantling them, <laughs> right? Like you ain't stopped me from shooting a hoop because it's helping me with my mental health and well-being. I just need to get outside. And it, did, it wasn't a matter of being great at it, right? That was what was so beautiful about it. Had nothing to it do with that. It wasn't about, it had zero to do with that. It had everything to do with being outside, working on my mental health and well-being, breathing in air, connecting community, belonging. It was the opposite of social distancing. Bam. It was the opposite, yes, of social distancing. You, um, you know, I I just want to go back to one thing Jake was asking you about, uh, you know, why, uh, why why is play not getting the the value in the place it ought to be and maybe it's because people are saying well toward what end what is this really helping me with get to you know for a, a thousand years the point has been to compete for resources to compete for power to compete for you know uh, 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 wealth and if that's the point well, Maybe you look at play and you say, okay, but if the point was we need to feed everyone, we need to heal everyone, we need to come together, then play might be like, oh. Mm. I think what you just said there, and it made me think about the importance of collaboration and what you learn when you play, but also mastery. So the more that I practice at something, regardless of whatever skill level I'm at, there is this amazing joy when you start to get better. I love watching skateboard communities, 
right? That's their whole culture. Everyone roots for each other. And there's something magical about pulling off a trick in skateboard and how everyone claps and cheers for you. Mastery, the whole idea of mastery. And so when we're learning how to gain mastery of a skill or something, people celebrate you. And so sport, there's a lot of that, right? That happens is this celebration, this collective celebration of you, you did that. You did that. That's amazing. It wasn't a matter of what level it was at. It was like, wow, that was such an achievement. And I know you had to practice to do that. And so the more that I think we can start to understand why we do these endeavors, we're gaining mastery, and the better we get at collaborating and supporting each other and rooting for each other, when we do have to solve a big issue, a big social issue, and we come together and convene on behalf of this issue, we all have this competitive spirit in us. And that competitive spirit is called mastery. We've been chasing and gaining mastery. I always say to people, and I, I, I use this analogy, we have all these apps on our devices, but the greatest app ever created is us. We are the greatest app ever created. But what are our apps always saying? Stays in beta, always in beta. Well, why aren't we in beta as a human being? Why aren't we always updating and improving and getting better? That's what we were doing when we play. And so as we go through life, if that is our attitude, right, of getting better each day, bug, fix that bug, fix that bug, get better. Oh my goodness. Imagine collectively if we had that mindset that goes back to that beginner's mind, doesn't it? That openness and eagerness to learn every day. So if we are so quick to, when it says to update your app, you've got updates, right? Hey, pause and go, where's my update today? How am I updating and getting better? How am I improving? How am I competing for me and my hopes, my dreams, my goals? And if we all get a competitive mindset that is about advancing the human condition in a positive way, come on. And we learn that through mastery of a skill, playing. It's no different than doing puzzles. You get better at it. The more you do it, it's no different than playing a board game. You get better at Scrabble when you do it, right? It's no better than when you get your fitness level, you get better by doing and you're typically the greatest foe you will ever meet is you. That is the greatest opponent you will face every day is you. And I just believe that if we can have that competitive spirit and we are using and channeling that energy to advance the human condition, come on. Like, I, I, we have a fighting chance then. And isn't that all we want? All I want is to play catch with you. Let's go. <laughs> let's go and you know when we grew up in my neighborhood we we played every sport right so i i always kind of had this like quiet confidence that there's probably not maybe golf is the only thing because i just think what is that uh that saying i think mark twain said it, it's a good walk spoiled yeah. right so, so so that's the only sport you ain't get. Nah, i can't do it it's the only one i'm sorry not, I don't mean to offend anybody out there, but I'm just saying it's the only one. Other than that, I, I feel pretty confident that I can put a glove on. I can grab a hockey stick, play street hockey as a kid, lacrosse stick, 
right? Baseball, bat, basketball, football, right? Soccer ball. I we could we could do a kickabout. We could do we could a catch, whatever. But it's something also magical about when you're just doing that casually, and then these conversations start happening. There's something about going back to that exchange. But what is that exchange? It's an offer, isn't it? It's an offer. And I think that's when you look at, you know, improv, right? It's always about the offer. Yes, and. So catch, yes, and, right? There's the offer, right? Throwing it back to you. And then you have a choice whether you want to continue to play. You can throw it again. And then you start having these conversations. I just, as you can tell, it's like, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm a little passionate about this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I'm also, I, I, I love, and Dave, I, I hope you appreciate, I don't spend all day in academia and I don't spend all day being a researcher, but I'm curious enough that I have my Google alerts set up that I'm always getting my play alerts. I'm getting social innovation through play alerts. I'm getting um, things around competition. I get alerts every single day. So I try to stay plugged into the movement and the idea that play is serious business. Kevin, I I wanted to ask you about something you said, um, and you kind of brought up Kobe earlier, so it kind of ties into him. Um, You talked about mastering your craft and and kind of the interaction that that has with play. I feel like Kobe is a perfect example of somebody who really, really mastered a sport. And I know you've known, you had a relationship with him um, for a long time. And I actually watched the interview you did with him. Um, And I'd love to hear more about what that interaction using him as an example, maybe is with play and kind of mastering the craft. So, so, um, I mean, one of the things about Bean, that's what we, everybody in Philly called him Bean. And one of the things about Bean that a lot of people, he, I think he shared the story several times about, he didn't score a point his first summer in Philly playing summer basketball, summer league basketball, didn't score a point. And I think that's when this competitive spirit started, right? That it's not just enough that I've got name recognition, if you will, or I'm associated to my dad or whatever it might be, people coming for me. Okay, so I've got to change my mindset about this. But it wasn't this like thing, like right away. It wasn't that at all. It was just, how do I get better? I can proudly say I saw Dawn Staley and Kobe Bryant play lunchtime basketball in Philly at St. Joe's. Oh, dude. Like, it was like legendary. (laughs) It was legendary because I helped Dawn out when she was still playing ball too. St. Joe's was this kind of like convening spot. And it was really magical what was happening in the early 90s there. And the thing that was happening was he had all these examples of people who were chasing mastery, who were older than him, because the Sixers practiced there. Because they didn't have their own facilities back in the 90s. Most of the professional NBA teams used colleges. So the Sixers practiced there for decades. So imagine you're a 13-year-old boy who's just returned from Italy, who just had an awful summer, right, of basketball, but you've got this place that you get to go to and you're seeing what you aspire to and you're watching how they go about it. And then you're mirroring and modeling that, right? And, oh, okay, this and that. And so I think over time, 
he started to develop this mindset. But it wasn't instant. It took time. But he was willing to put the work in. And he had a curiosity about raising his game. And in that interview, right, he talked about, you know, try it on me, right? He was just open to any of these crazy ideas I had about working out. Like, hey, you want to try this in the pool? Sure, I'll try it, right? And so his curiosity served him well. He was already in that beta mindset, right? Always updating, always improving, always getting better. And it's that 1%, right? If I can stack these little micro wins, these little wins, it doesn't matter what endeavor you're doing. It's not just exclusive to sport. It's whatever it is that you're trying to elevate. I love that you use that. Elevate your goals. It's just beautiful that way. So I saw Bean grow from what I always say, he was a zero trying to be a one to becoming this you know, legendary athlete. But even more so, he never lost his humanity, especially with people who knew him from when he was a zero trying to be a one. But my wife always says when I'm around, you know, some people and they get disarmed by my energy, she said, it's really endearing to look at their feet because they got little kid feet around (laughs) you, like they're wiggling and they're just chatting and they're no longer who they are. They're just their core self. And Bean and I were just on stage and he prompted, like he stopped me before I could even go further into the talk. Like, wait, you all need to understand how far back me and this guy go. We go way back. That wasn't prompted by me or anything. It was about the mutual respect we had for each other because my idea with him and anyone, if you shine, I shine. My agenda is you. And if I can help you shine and I have no agenda except that, you don't forget those people. You don't ever forget. I don't want anything from you but you to be successful. And I can tell you countless stories, and my wife laughs about this, these kids that I saw them playing or saw them reading a book and maybe they were eight or nine. Let's fast forward 25 years. They're in their 30s now. They are hiring me at their businesses they work at, sending me notes. You might not remember me, but you came to my elementary school. You stopped and talked to me. You um, signed this book for my mom to give to me. And now I work at this, this, this place. I'm going to hire you. I want other people to meet you because you saw me when other people were overlooking me. And isn't that what we all want is to be seen? We all want to be seen. And that doesn't matter where you're at on your continuum of life. We just want to be seen. And play is an easy way to do that. And being playful is an easy way to do that. I go back to curiosity. They're partners in crime. Playfulness, curiosity. So, yeah. So, there's your bean story. Yes. So, uh, so yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's my man's. Yeah, definitely. I, I That is such a keepsake, having that interview from 2018. And I watch it on his birthday, 823. And I watch it on Mama Day the next day, 824. And it's just lovely to see that and us together. And, and I just go all the way back to, you know, I babysat him, so you should know. I babysat him. What? Yeah, so so they had just come from Italy. 
And his dad knew me and saw that I was working at a summer camp and pulled up in the car and said, hey, Kevin, would you watch my son? We're looking for our house. I'm like, sure. Kobe, come on, come on. And he says, he'll probably just want a ball and want to shoot. If you can find a ball and a hoop, he'll be fine. And his dad pulled away. My son went with Kobe. They went and shot hoops for hours. Kobe gave my son an official title. He's my official rebounder. My son is nearly 40 now. Okay. So my son was maybe eight or nine then. Fast forward, anytime I would run into Kobe, anytime, hug me, whisper, how's my official rebounder doing? 2018, he asked me, how's my official rebounder doing? He never forgot that. Of course, my son claimed, right? He goes, dad, I got him the ball in the pocket, man, in the pocket. <laughs> so, so. That's incredible. But yeah, but that's but this is what I, I say about play and feeling seen and the humanity that can be exchanged in something so simple as a game. I, I think just to call that out here, right? That story, everything you just said about Kobe, I'm one of the biggest Kobe fans of all time. And I feel like there is this, you know, there's the Black Mamba. There's that version of Kobe that everybody sees, the killer. And it's less about, you know, who he is as a person, that humanity, that, you know, those little things, those little gestures that clearly meant a lot to him that were super important to his character and development, you know, stemming from his curiosity, his early days of play. You, you don't see that side. And I think just to hear that, you know, to have you share that shows you really the importance of play, even with somebody that is looked at as one of the greatest basketball players of all time who did things no one has ever done in the sport, right? It's, well, he remembered, you know, his official rebounder every year. Every time he saw you, he made sure to ask about him. You know, the humanity, where that comes from, I think that is just so important to echo. Yeah, and I think it's important for folks to know, I mean, he, he, he's still being, right? I mean, when I would see him, he would see someone who had no agenda. His handler said to me after that interview, he's never like that. I said, well, I don't, I'm not the New York Times. I'm not some gotcha journalist. That's my man's, like, we were just chopping it up and having a conversation like we would do when we were working out. It wasn't some, I had no agenda except him. And for us to exchange for the audience, right, as much insight or information we could to better them. And I think that's what people don't understand when you're in this place of being transformational, not transactional with people. And I'm well-versed in that through play and witnessing that's what it all comes down to. And because I'm so well-practiced, because out of necessity I needed it, Dr. Stuart Brown says, my play history is one of the most profound he has ever collected. And he has collected thousands of play histories for the National Institute for Play. He said, because not only did play heal you, Kevin, and help you navigate your circumstances, you are now reinvested in the movement. You're a part of the movement. He says, most people go on to do whatever it is they do. You actually join the movement and are advancing it. He said, that makes your story really profound. And I had never thought about it that way. I just felt like it was my calling. But I understand now I have this opportunity to espouse and to share why play matters. And I love that, Dave, that why, right? 
I can give you, I can pull from all these stories. You can tell, right? Like, my God, like, where's he got all these stories? I have all this stuff just sitting in me because I know I'm the vessel on behalf of this. Like, I understand it, but I'm constantly connecting. I'm constantly curating. I stay plugged in because it matters that much. And maybe, and you hear this about athletes, they say this all the time. Maybe it's the first time you've ever heard me speak. Maybe it's the first time you ever saw me play, right? Athletes would always say, Michael Jordan would say that all the time. That's why he loved playing so much because maybe you never got to see me play before. So for me, when I do my presentations or podcasts or whatever, maybe you've never heard from me before. I'm going to bring the same enthusiasm for any of my conversations. I'm going to bring all the preparation, all the things, because there's going to be a listener or a viewer, right? Or someone in the audience who's never heard from me before. And that is really important to them. And so I'm speaking to that person. And so I just love the fact that you all have given me an opportunity to, you know, to, to stand on my pulpit once again, this play pulpit, and to share. And, and I'm hoping that, you know, the viewers and listeners get some value out of this. And, you know, that's why I'm giving a plethora, right? Like, I'm just, I'm going to give you the, as much as I can, right? You're going to drink from a fire hose. <laughs> I always tell folks that. Right. Because at some point, maybe you'll find the morsel that you needed. But I just really appreciate you all giving me a platform. Well, you are a vessel uh, for a message that everyone can access. You don't need a PhD. Uh, you don't need a lot of money. You don't need to be the, to the COO or the SVP. You can just play. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I hope that you get more pulpits, more stages, uh, more uh, ears and, and, and listeners. Um, but we have one more question for you that we end every podcast on. Uh, and um, it's like a, a question you'd get on a quiz. Uh, so don't be, you know, so, uh, it's just a fill in the blank. Here's the question. If the world was more like basketball than blank. If the world was more like basketball than politics, I just think that um, basketball is about convening, basketball is about community, basketball is about um, offers and concessions and um, know your role. Sometimes it's not your day, right? And so I'm just feeding because somebody else is on fire and my agenda is the overall, the team. In politics right now, and sadly, it's global, you're seeing the same kind of energy around that. And so I think if politicians could harken back to what play really mattered to them as children, what was their favorite game, toy, avocation, or hobby, and take some pause into that and realize what, it, what were the benefits of that? Why was that important to you? Ask yourself why? And before you cross that threshold into that chamber, into that venue, into that place where you're making big decisions to affect society and humanity, that pause might be just enough that you cross that threshold and recognize that I'm seeing my third grade friend, my seventh grade friend, 
my my auntie, my uncle, who looked at me with admiration when I made that basket, when it was just an intramural basketball game or a youth football game or a youth soccer game or a cricket game, right, or rugby game, whatever it was. And I want to make them proud. And I want to bring that joy and I want to feel that joy again. I just think, yeah, people want to say, oh, that's so naive or whatever. I said, but it's really not. Because I've seen play heal. I've seen play be used to solve big issues, conflict issues, gender issues, health issues, education issues. I've seen it around the world. And a lot of these leaders, we've got the great story, right? Nelson Mandela, right, in the Rugby World Championships in South Africa. I mean, that's the whole Invictus. If you've not seen the movie, go watch it. I got to hear Archbishop Tutu tell the Invictus story before the movie came out. So don't tell me that basketball or play can't change the world because I've witnessed it and I know it. And so if basketball, right, and politics could actually figure out how to learn from each other? Come on, man. I mean, let's just... Yeah. So, sorry. Rev no, Camp no, came no, out no, you're good. There. That was great. I, 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 Do it. Rev Camp came out. I'm no, sorry. You know, perfect. but uh, yeah. It was so. perfect. Thank you so much, Kevin. We It really has been an honor uh, to have you on and to really hear your story and, and share everything with our audience. So, thank you. For listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks, that's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.